we've been mitigating the negative consequences of international travel, whereas we never really took into consideration potential to say, well, maybe there's another flip side where actually by radically changing the hospitality model, you may be able to significantly enhance. And, and the consequence of that could be massive climate change mitigation or huge improvements to biodiversity. Welcome to Truth Behind Travel Podcast, the world's first podcast dedicated to travel recovery. I'm Dolores Semeraro, and I'm on a mission to help tourism organizations and travel professionals to lead a business that restores confidence in travel. If you're looking for a travel podcast that gives you more than just wanderlust, you've found the right one. Subscribe to the show to receive a new episode every Thursday straight to your inbox, together with travel tips and best practices of my podcast guests. Hello and welcome to another episode of Truth Behind Travel Podcast, where the conversation on the future of travel is evolving as we speak. And I'm so pleased to see how the recent podcast guests have contributed to learn more about sustainability in the travel industry. Before we get on with today's episode, guess what? Truth Behind Travel Podcast is shortlisted for an award in the category of changing the world one moment at a time. The award is powered by the Skylark Collective and it's called International Women's Podcast Award. The award night though is on the 23rd of September and you can join that too if you want to support the podcast and cheer up the many talented podcasters who are there with me. I will leave the link in the show notes for you to take your seat and it will mean a world to me to see you there that night. Meanwhile, keep all your fingers crossed for me. Okay, on today's episode, not long ago, I moderated a virtual panel on the future of travel and one of my guest speakers brought up a topic that left everybody in the virtual room scratching their heads. That was rewilding hospitality. I was so intrigued and what did that mean? Does it reflect an overgrowing trend for travelers to go as farther and wilder as possible to get away from the crowds that are populating mass tourism destinations, especially post-COVID? Or does it refer to an encouraging subculture across the industry operators, you know, to explore the possibilities to rebuild the hospitality within a more sustainable framework? Well, to answer all these questions, lots of questions I know, Today, I called in a pioneer of sustainable hospitality project. He is the CEO and founder of Nomadic Resorts, a design company with a holistic approach to hospitality projects. They have a very strong sustainable ethos in everything they do, whether that is master planning, architectural design, landscape design, interior design, you name it. So, without further ado, let's welcome Louis Thompson. Welcome back and thank you, Luis, for joining me today on the podcast. I'm so glad to have you because we've been talking about the concept of nomadic resorts on other tourism forums recently. And I wanted to have a conversation with you today on the podcast about a subject that is becoming, and thankfully, I'd say, it's becoming quite dominant in the tourism and travel conversation, and that is rewilding hospitality. There's a lot to say about it, the, the do's and don'ts, the pros and the cons. But before we go to that, uh, I'd like you to give us an overview of what is your professional background? What brought you to create nomadic resorts? 
Okay, so um, basically my background is a little bit of a strange one, is that uh, basically I initially did a degree in um, European politics and did my, uh, my thesis on the common agricultural policy. I then studied permaculture design, which is a kind of edible landscaping and organic farming methodology. And then only after that um, did I study hospitality management and hospitality design. So basically my background is a little bit going from, from a more political and economic end of the spectrum, and then moving through sustainability and sustainable design into the hospitality design. The story of it is a little bit of a peculiar one, is that uh, I did um, my hotel management degree in, in France in 1999. And my business plan at that time was for a zero carbon eco lodge for hikers in La Union. And when I finished this, um, you know, this course and this business plan for this this lodge. Um, I I did a, a professional internship here in Mauritius and was introduced to Six Senses and uh, Sonova Resorts. And then with that very strange situation, we moved to the Maldives uh, to a resort called Sonova Gili. And within three weeks of arriving there, the tsunami destroyed the resort and I was given a job uh, with the construction team. And that's really how it started. I ended up moving into the project management, construction, development team of Six Senses and worked with them for nine years and ended up doing their environmental management plan and their special sustainable projects department. And that was really how I got started um, with Nomadic Resorts, was having gained this experience in, in the design of bamboo buildings, zero carbon uh, tented camp concepts, it was a sort of natural evolution from there to, to start our own company. We decided to launch a startup, and I, I invited uh, some of the collaborators who I'd been working with at Six Senses uh, to participate in this new new project. And I offered them a small number of shares, and we basically created the design collective. Um, and that was included Olaf Brun, our architect. Um, XCO2 Energy, our MEP engineers who have a fantastic in-depth knowledge of, of uh, sustainable engineering, thermal modeling, uh, renewable energies, and sustainable wastewater recycling. And uh, that was that was the launch of Nomadic Resorts 10 years ago. And how did it go since then? So we only do a very small number of projects. Um, so for example, when we got the opportunity to work with Dominic Nordman and Malik Fernando, for a splendid salon in, in, in Sri Lanka, that was very much a breakthrough. Malik took a huge risk, you know, uh, employing a company which had no real credibility or track record whatsoever. His aim was to, to compete against Singita and Wilderness Safaris and the big boys in Africa. And we said, well, look, we'll, we'll, we'll try and do our best. <laughs> because that, you know, it got a certain amount of recognition. It got UNESCO uh, Prix Versailles for the best restaurant design. And then it got, it did quite well in the Head Awards. That was very good news for us because it, it allowed us to position ourselves in this, you know, niche of, of niches. It's, it's really the, you know, uh, well, at the time it was a much smaller niche, by the way. Then we got to work with Banyan Tree for, uh, you know, bamboo bars. We've been working 
with uh, a very interesting client, um, David Leventhal from Playa Viva, who is the founder of the regenerative travel movement. So we're doing, we've got a project under construction with them in Mexico at the moment. Fantastic project. Um, and we got to do some projects in India. So, you know, we've, we've moved a little bit in South Asia, still very, very much focused on only doing projects that we really feel strongly passionate about and that adhere to the environmental ethos. So the project in Sri Lanka was a breakthrough, but so you basically needed a proof of concept. Yeah, exactly. So under normal circumstances, that's quite that's that it is the difficult bit. And what was unusual in that in this scenario was that the client gave us the architectural design, the interior design, the landscape design, the MEP design, and we were main contractor for the project. So it was almost like a design and build contract, which is for a project of that scale is very unusual scenario. I mean So there was something that inspired trust in the capabilities of the collective that you put together, which location so far of the project that you have done was your most challenging? Actually, I think strangely enough, it might be, it might be not at all what you expect, is uh, recently we've been asked to build a tented cap in a major city in, in Athens in Greece. And that's presented us with a whole bunch of challenges that we weren't accustomed to. We know about building in remote places. We've put in place a whole methodology for coping with crocodiles and elephants and, and, and you know, inaccessible roads and muddy places and jetties that have to be invented out of nothing. All of that we were quite experienced with. You know, urban, urban, environment, urban regulations and parking and even more foreign to us and alien to us than, than work, work in the wilderness. So strange, peculiar question, but actually it's probably a city environment because also there's no glamping things in cities. So there are no regulations typically that correspond with this kind of product in that kind of environment. It just happens that Athens has this part of the city that has been, hasn't been developed with traditional... You just mentioned you have a methodology when you approach a project in a specific location. What, what sort of methodology is that? I'm intrigued. What is it? So um, what we do is, is a very slightly eccentric way of approaching it. There are three different things. There's one, we do a huge amount of research on the climate, the hydrology, um, soil conditions, geological um, uh, history, uh, seismic activity, wind speeds, meteorology, we do a huge amount of sort of very, very quite tedious uh, academic research. Then we do a slightly more fun part of the research is that we, we study the vernacular architecture and traditional building techniques in each environment in, we, in which we operate. And that allows us to basically understand what materials have, have historically been used and what residual skills might be found in the, in, in the local community. Um, so that we can recruit people from the local community to do some of the work. Um, so that vernacular architectural side of it is, is, again, quite academic, but it's also quite fun. It involves sort of Google searching, you know, all sorts of strange things. It could be a rice, uh, a rice barn design in Africa, or, or it could be many different things. Uh, we also obviously look for eccentric, unusual structures. 
Uh, and then finally, we go on site visit, and we have a very immersive way of doing site visits. So for us, part of this process is to understand um, both the social structures that surround the location, but also the environmental flows and energy movements around that particular site. Um, and when we're on site, we spend real time. Uh, you know, we like to sleep on site. We like to see what mosquitoes, you know, are, are going to do. We want to hear the noises. How, are there toads that bark at night? Are there, um, you know, are there clouds of midges or sandflies? Or, or all of these things are super critical. And then we do another very strange thing, which is we go treasure hunting. And what I mean by treasure hunting is. You know, once you've got the general flows, you understand the history of the place, you then try to look for, uh, it's a process we call biomimicry, often it's called biomimicry. But in our way of doing it, it's, it's a more kind of hands-on approach. So we go and look for the small things. Um, that could be a saprophytic fungi growing on the root of a dead, on a dead branch in the forest. It could be a strange stone or a strangely shaped stone. It could be shells have always been, been very common. Another one is uh, insect bodies and insect nests and nests of different animals, basically. And we kind of wander around like sort of 18th century botanical lunatics, um, sort of fishing around with, you know, almost with like lepidopterists, butterfly nets, um, wandering around looking for, for, for strange shapes. Um, and then when we go back in the evening, we kind of collect all of that together and we kind of sift through it and we discuss the pros and cons and, of, the, of the different shapes. And quite often the design, the conceptual design or the, or the forms of the building are probably eight times out of 10 derived from, from those little findings, basically. Tell me, as a tourism and travel business owner, how many times have you thought, oh, I have to do it all by myself, my marketing, my sales, my accounting, the job, and where does it end? Also, how many times as a solopreneur you felt kind of lonely and you wished you had someone to bounce new ideas with, you know, somebody to talk to? I hear you. That's why every month I host the Hospitality and Tourism Roundtable where the members can learn, discuss, and connect with each other and with travel industry experts. There are monthly masterclasses, expert-led workshops, and an inclusive group discussion every month. Say no more, head over to the link in the show notes because I'm celebrating the birthday of Truth Behind Travel Podcast this month, and I have a gift for you. Head over to the link in the show notes and sign up for a free pass to the roundtable discussion. There are only five passes available, so first come, first serve. I can't wait to see you there. Sounds like there's quite a few of you involved in, in the team that does, you know, the groundwork, the research work, the conceptual work, the design work, and ultimately, you know, delivering it to, to your to your to your client, to the to the hotel owner. So I'm curious, what kind of hotel owner calls up for the nomadic resorts concept? It's often a private individual, essentially, who is the owner or the in instigator of the project. 
typically that person has a very strong sense of stewardship or ownership or a, a very strong affiliation with that particular site. Those people, you know, they have a particular mindset that's not necessarily going to work with the conventional big design teams in the traditional design process of having multiple different consultants uh, from different geographical locations. So you have a landscape designer from Singapore, architect from New York, interior designer from London or whatever that may look like. That's quite difficult to achieve a coherent design narrative that respects the physical characteristics of the site. So, But the type of client who that appeals to is very often a little bit of a maverick, a little bit of somebody who's got strong sustainability um, beliefs or has a particular commitment to either the local community or to the site itself. So today, the client said, we want to make a resort that's invisible, almost invisible. We were like, well, we've been wanting to make a resort that's invisible for years. So, you know, uh, this is a great opportunity. They wanted to integrate natural building materials into the design. And, you know, you could sense that it was a very good fit from the beginning. As you, you define exactly the right word, I wouldn't say like the maverick. So those that really are pushed forward by a vision, by a sense of belonging of either the site or, or the place where they want to develop the, um, the structure. And uh, regardless of it's a tent structure or it's, it's, it's built in, it's integrated, it's on a tree, it's on the ground, regardless. Whether the motive, do you feel that there is almost like a, a quest for places that are farther that are wilder, that are sort of like out of the beaten, off the beaten tracks for travelers that are away from the competition so that you don't get to really have much choice. Whether you want to go there, you got to come to this place. So what, what are your feelings about it? Because you get this request. Yeah, we do. And I'll, I'll give you some good examples of that. So, you know, there is a cycle, okay? There's a cycle of how tourism happens in many locations. And, you know, very traditionally, it's the backpackers who arrive, kind of hippie-doos, they find this crazy, cool waterfall, beach, and wherever. And, you know, it could be in Thailand, for example, be a classic example in the 80s. Um, and then, you know, you get a more uh, kind of pioneering travellers or eco-tourists who are cotton onto it. And then gradually, their families start to come, and then mass tourism starts to take over. You know, one of the things that we always you know, say is, privacy, quiet, personal space. You know, these are, are now in our modern world. Two-thirds of the population will live in major cities by 2030, I think it is. You know, these have become real assets. And the experiences that people can have in these spaces allow them to recharge their own batteries, to reconnect with themselves and reconnect with their natural environment. And what we're saying now is, if you're going to do that, and you're going to find these remote locations, try and get a, a reasonably large piece of land and demonstrate your environmental commitment by improving the biodiversity. And this can be done by, in different ways, but it's a long-term commitment. It's not something, you know, it's not 
replacing the straws. Okay, you know, the hospitality industry has has been guilty of uh, of these relatively small, inconsequential uh, sustainability activities. But something like rewilding is a long term commitment. So you can basically play with what we call the trophic cascades, which is the food pyramid within an environment, by reintroducing keystone species or by a thing called taxon substitution, which essentially means that you can recreate landscapes as they were pre-human intervention. It's a, it's a long-term commitment, but that has a significant effect on, on the way that that, that landscape behaves and that can change the physical course of rivers what i think the the point about rewilding is saying if the hospitality industry was really serious about uh developing the natural capital on which the wealth of the whole travel industry is based it can potentially do that and i think this is something that hasn't been understood in the industry is we've been mitigating the negative of consequences of international travel, whereas we never really took into consideration the potential to say, well, maybe there's another flip side where actually by radically changing the hospitality model, you may be able to significantly enhance. And, and the consequence of that could be massive climate change mitigation or huge improvements to biodiversity and um, endemic plant species. So if you're saying that regardless where the demand comes from, if the demand comes from the consumer or from, or from the industry directly, the operators, it, we don't, it's not about a, a cause and effect sort of chain reaction. I love the point of investing in an opportunity like that, not just for the sake of going and conquering as much as possible about what's left of, of the wilderness of, of the planet, but actually to, to, give, an, to give a chance and to, to study what are the opportunities for the future of travel to actually play an active role in, in the conservation of what we're trying to exploit, really. One thing that's uh, really quite important to understand is, is that there's a legislative change that is on the way at the moment. You know, um, there's going to be the 26 UN Climate Change Conference, COP26 in Glasgow this year. And the difference is that for the first time, the US, the EU and China are all aligned on, you know, climate action. And what that's going to do is that's basically going to mean that real estate comes under the scrutiny the real estate investment is come on, going to come under the scrutiny of this ESG. Um, for, uh, I'm not going to call it a trend because it's not, it's not a trend. So there'll be initiatives like the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, um, which basically mean that investment companies are going to have to be completely transparent about the climate impact of their portfolio. Now, perfectly honest, Hotels don't, aren't very good at this. <laughs> so if you look at uh, hotels as commercial buildings, um, they've got the highest square meter energy use and the highest square meter water use of any kind, kind of commercial building. So we talk about you know, the sustainability of the efforts of the hospitality industry. 
But the reality is, is that to reduce their carbon emissions to appropriate levels by 2030, they'd need to reduce their energy consumption of the typical hotel room by 66%. So when, when we're, so what, what's going to happen is, is, that, is that it'll be the ESG funding mechanisms that are going to drive this. And the hotel operators, firstly, I think that a lot of hotel operators are going to be playing catch-up because they've been filling around with, with maybe relatively inconsequential PR-based initiatives. But in, Q, in 2021, sustainability-related fund assets climbed to $3 trillion globally. So basically, the money that will be available for investment will be money that has a strong ESG obligation associated with it. And I think, you know, uh, and I never thought we'd be saved by the bankers. Initiatives to, you know, firstly for zero net zero carbon building methodology will become you know widespread because the regulatory environment will be such that if your building isn't uh, thermally or, or performant then you might not get permission what i think is there's kind of three a triple whammy if you like there's one guest expectation and sustainability expectations of millennials notably where they're they're not the smoke and mirrors don't work quite in the same way as they might have done on baby boom generations where you could say oh here's a here's a recycled plastic straw suck on that uh whereas the millennials are going to be significantly harder customers to to please because there'll also be more transparency in businesses generally because of the sustainability initiatives from the government. Secondly, I think you're going to find that hotel operators who haven't adopted a strong sustainability ethos or integrated sustainable practices into their operational procedures and best practices might just not make it through the whole thing. Uh, And then thirdly is a legislative environment in which only sustainable hotels are going to be built. That's already happening here in Mauritius, where if your project isn't sustainable, you just don't even get into the permissions process anyway. And then finally, the, the, the hammer is, is if the funding, they say, you know, you've got to prove your ESG criteria and your environmental credibility for us to fund the project, then all of those things combined inevitably lead to the conclusion that a seriously, significantly more sustainable hospitality model will will develop. When you talk about the implications of the permits and uh, all the, you know, the range of regulations that needs to be in place first, how we can rebuild hospitality in the future in a better manner and based on the regulations that matter? I wonder, having lived myself in... On, on, on islands for the last 12 years, really coming around to my sixth year now in Mauritius. And I know that not everybody approaches this in the same way because there's a lot of resistance, like the operators developing this concept and, and the authorities approaching these regulations and, and giving way to these regulations to be implemented. 
And actually, yes, you have a concept that comes from a summit of global leaders, but eventually you have to build the regulatory body that enables the institutions to apply these principles. And that's where a lot of this bigger picture fails because the institutions don't actually invest in building that body of regulations. I do hope that alongside with the, the private sector, the public sector also enables the, the, the necessary regulatory framework for the private sector you know, to conform. Otherwise, what do we conform with if everything is so blurry and, and ad- adaptable, right? That, that will always be a challenge. There will always be loopholes that will be exploited because of you know, affiliations, family memberships, bribes, or whatever the case may be. But I think what we can only hope is that an overriding trend develops and that the there's an alignment from organizations like the UNWTO who 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 create a, a an inf- a framework in which all con- countries can understand what are the best practices for hospitality development in their locations. I know it's it's easier said than done, but when I see you know, a few encouraging initiatives here and there. And we just, I just wished for the overall media attention, whether it's private, like it's social media or, or, or traditional media or digital media, whatever, to bring to the attention of the public those encouraging steps, like what, what, whatever they happen in the world. You know, sometimes I look at, you know, I switch on the TV, watch the news, and I, I just want to switch it off again because the narrative of, of the global media information flow, it's so dominated by a, a, a specific subject at once. So we got to speak of Afghanistan. Everybody speaks of Afghanistan. We got to speak of this. We got Everybody speaks of this. So I, I wish that, that we could leave a little bit of variety and we could have some space. That's why I hope that the podcast is one of these spaces when, when it comes to encouraging and fueling this time of conversation. But before we leave to the end of the, of the podcast today, which was lovely, I, I, I mean, we, we touched on some very hot topic and uh, we gave a lot of food for thoughts for those hotel operators that are listening to the podcast of, of, of this episode. I want to talk about on the on the wave of what you know when you when you mentioned the, the initiatives of UNWTO aligned with world leaders or so. There is one specific initiative that you actually are involved with at the moment, and that is the UNWTO Rural Tourism Startup Competition, of what um, of which Nomadic Resorts is a finalist. So. I would like, I mean, first of all, I congratulate you and your team because it's an incredible achievement worldwide. And, but I would like to know about what are you required to do? What will you be doing moving forward? And when are we going to know if you are the winner? Okay, so this is an example of an initiative, which I think, you know, one of several initiatives that have been carried out by different organizations. We participated in a thing called the Climate Launchpad Startup Competition last year. And this year we participated in the UNWTO. And we were fairly fortunate to, to become to be nominated as, as finalists. There is going to be funding allocated to rebuild better. Okay. And the, obviously, a lot of hotel companies have had financial aid um, subsidized by taxpayers over the last 18 months, and rightly so. And that's allowed the hotel industry to protect an awful lot of jobs. But I think that, you know, this, this kind of competition indicates that there is a 
a desire to change the way that rural hospitality is, is initiated and operated. So nomadic escape basically synthesizes all of the work we've done today on this zero carbon energy use, rainwater collection and reuse, uh, rewilding land regeneration and native landscaping. And in addition to that, we've incorporated the local community into the operating and construction model. So it's a very ambitious um, project that, that to really create this positive, nature positive hospitality model. It's all exciting. So October and uh, the finalist will uh, will do the final pitch and the winner will be revealed. So we'll keep an eye out on the UNWTO website and of course the, the channels of uh, Nomadic Resorts and Nomadic Escapes. So thank you so much. This was an interesting conversation, especially because I think we touched on some uh, sensitive notes for the hospitality industry. And uh, not only for that, but also uh, I'd like to, to, you know, to shine a light on those individuals, those, those pioneers. In a way, you are a pioneer of, your, of the niche of the niche that you represent, which is um, building a sustainable model and regenerative model of hospitality. And uh, for that, I thank you so much for your time. And uh, I wish you all the best and good luck with the competition. Thank you very much, Dolores, and uh, thank you very much for having me. It's an honour. You've had some great guests, and uh, well done with the podcast. Thank you all for joining me today on the podcast. Did you enjoy it? Leave me a review on Apple Podcast. The link is in the show notes. Tell me why you liked it, what you liked about it, and what were your takeaways. See you all again next week for another episode, and hopefully, and a word to celebrate together. <laughs>